1998 was a year of big change in the state of Florida. We had spent the last eight years under the keen leadership of Lawton Childs, who spent his two terms working to reform health care and education throughout the state. When Hurricane Andrew hit South Florida in the middle of his first term, Childs was neck deep in one of many environmental disasters during his tenure. Together with his Lieutenant Governor Buddy McKay, Childs led the third eight-year term for a Democratic governor since Reuben Askew started the trend in 1971. They were hoping to keep that trend alive as Buddy McKay began his campaign to pivot from Lieutenant Governor to Governor. With Lawton Childs reaching his term limit, McKay felt like the natural choice to continue the Democratic legacy in Florida's state government. His name was Kenneth Hood McKay Jr., and he was born in Ocala in 1933. He was the son of a citrus farming family. His family remained in Ocala for decades, even as their son, affectionately called Buddy, rose the ranks of the political sphere. He started as a lawyer at the University of Florida, then became a Florida representative, a Florida senator, a U.S. representative for Florida, and tried to pivot to becoming a U.S. senator, but lost to one of our most famous figures, Connie Mack III. With his loss as senator and a long political career behind him, Buddy McKay was the natural choice to join Lawton Childs' ticket. When it came time to run for governor himself, however, Buddy was on track to face yet another formidable opponent. His name was John Ellis Bush, a Republican from Texas that most people just called Jeb. Jeb Bush was ready for a rematch. In 1994, when Lawton Childs was running for his re-election to return to the governorship, Jeb Bush stepped up to the plate as the Republican candidate. The son of former President George Herbert Walker Bush, Jeb was already known nationally as one of the Bush kids. His father had served for eight years as Ronald Reagan's vice president and smoothly made the transition to president in 1988. He had worked as a real estate developer in Florida for 14 years by the time he ran for governor, and when it came time for Childs to face re-election, Bush was a favorite in the race for Republicans. He won nearly half the total votes in the Republican primary and was raring to take on Lawton on his own. A one-two punch of bad circumstances had sent Lawton Childs' approval ratings down the drain. He cut funding for education in 1991 and in 1992, with the chaos surrounding Hurricane Andrew, the lack of successful action by the state government meant people had less faith in their governor. But Lawton was not disheartened, and in the following months, the campaign started to get a little scrappy. Childs started positioning himself as a down-home Florida boy. He was indeed born in Lakeland. Contrasting that with the Texas-born son of a president, Childs was able to gain some ground, but both men lost some moral high ground. With noted misinformation in ads around the state, both sides were playing to win at any cost. The final vote showed the closeness of this race. 50.75% of the votes went to Lawton, 49.2% of the votes went to Jeb. Childs took the victory. But Jeb never lost sight of the end goal. It's no surprise that when Lawton was reaching the end of his second term, Jeb Bush made a return to the race. Buddy McKay was facing a formidable opponent, especially considering how close Jeb was to winning only a few years earlier. But things are never easy in elections, and at the exact same time as the state of Florida was preparing for a possible change in administration, a spark was catching in the heart of our East Coast. Soon enough, that spark would be a wildfire in the state of Florida would be caught up in its fury. 
I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the 1998 firestorm. We all hear about wildfires all the time, but none in Florida have quite matched the ferocity of the events of 1998. So how does a wildfire even begin? What are we doing to fight them? And how, in the summer of 1998, did Florida become the site of not just a wildfire, but a fire storm? But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Wait 5 Minutes is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Halloween is just around the corner. Now is the time to get in touch with Annie to plan your costume to make this Halloween a big one. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. There are links to both of those in the description of this episode. Thank you to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. All right, I want you to meet my guest this week. The 1998 firestorm, despite its fantastical name, was in actuality a series of intense wildfires that grew and evolved over the course of months. Fundamentally, we all know what a wildfire is, but we need to understand how one begins and why. Our guest this week is an expert on such things. Her name is Cinnamon Dixon. So I'm Cinnamon Dixon. I am a fire ecologist at Tell Timbers Research Station. And so as a fire ecologist, my job is really looking at how fires impact our ecosystems. Particularly, I look at the vegetation. But we also branch out and some to do a little bit of soils or other things as well. Cinnamon is a fire ecologist and got her degree at the University of West Florida, where she did plenty of research on prairies and other types of ecosystems that are defined as fire dependent. So basically, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Fire-dependent ecosystems are ones where if you were to remove the fire, so to suppress all the fire, that ecosystem would change so that it no longer exists. Um, so in the area that we are in Tallahassee, we have a lot of, you know, longleaf pine, and we have these open pine savannas. If you remove fire from that, what you get is a lot of woody vegetation that encroaches, so you lose the understory completely. You lose a lot of the plants, a lot of the animals that were there. Cinnamon mentions the longleaf pine, which is a fascinating variety of tree that we have talked about on this show before. In fact, my guest from that episode, the brilliant Nicole Zampieri, was the one who suggested I reach out to Cinnamon and the organization she works for, Tall Timbers. Tall Timbers is a group that works to use fire to keep ecosystems healthy. I'll let Cinnamon explain. So Tall Timbers um, actually was a hunting plantation for the owner, Henry Beetle. He eventually got more interested in conservation than he was in hunting. And so since he didn't have any living children, he decided to basically create Tall Timbers and donate his property for this research station. So that started in 1958. And so the mission of Tall Timbers is to foster exemplary land stewardship through research, conservation, and education. So we do research on 
you know, fire oncology is looking at the vegetation, looking at the soils. We have a fire science crew that looks at the actual fire itself and how it behaves and how the smoke impacts things and what that does. Um, we have our game bird lab, which focuses on the northern bobwhite quail and how fire impacts that. Also, the other organisms that interact with the bobwhite. We also have the Stoddard Bird Lab, which looks at pretty much any bird you can think of <laughs> in the southeast. Um, they do a lot with red cockaded woodpeckers, with Bachman sparrows, with the brown-headed nuthatch. So all these birds that live in these fire-dependent habitats. Wow. Um, and that's just the research side. <laughs> we also have a land conservancy that was started in 1991, I believe. And so we actually are certified and to do conservation easements. Wow. And so we have put over 100,000 acres in easements throughout just the Red Hills region where we are, which is this northern Florida and southwest Georgia. And then, of course, we also try to do any kind of education and outreach that we can. As you can tell from all that, there is a lot to be done in the field of science surrounding fire's relationship with Florida's ecosystem. If someone didn't know that many ecosystems depended on fire, they'd suspect that fire in an ecosystem is an inherently disastrous thing, the kind of thing that leads to wildfires. But Cinnamon tells me that nearly all of Florida ecosystems need fire, nearly all of them. How much of Florida's ecosystem is fire dependent? Like, I know we have a lot of different ecosystems, lowlands, uh, pine forests, swamps, wetlands, things like that. How many of those things are fire dependent? The majority of it, I would um, actually hazard to say all of it. There would be very few areas that have not been touched by fire. Fire return interval um, would vary between the different systems. Sure. Um, so you can go anywhere from like, you know, it needs fire every one to three years. Or it could be like every 15 years. Wow. Or even longer than that. But I would, I would say probably all of Florida has been touched by fire and impacted by fire in some way. How common is that for other states um, in the United States? Are, are most states dealing with a situation like that where all of the ecosystems are fire dependent or is Florida kind of unique in that situation? I would say that all states have some degree of fire that has been you know, historically present in the systems. In some areas it is more common than others. In the southeast, we are very fire-dependent systems here. And when you look out west, you know, they also have fire-dependent systems. Usually the fire return interval is just longer. Got it. Um, okay. So, so, yeah. so the amount of time between when fire is sort of necessary for an ecosystem is shorter in the southeast than it would be for the west? Typically, yes. I mean, obviously they have different systems sure, throughout the west where some of them, you know, might be on a you know, five-year fire return interval historically, whereas, you know, other ones might be like on a 200-year right. fire return interval. Sure. <laughs> sure. So it's not as if fire is not present in Florida's ecosystem or even a naturally destructive thing. Fire is one of the many things that make up the complex system of Florida nature. But we do get wildfires, ones where fire turns from a necessary cleansing thing and starts to become an uncontrolled, dangerous one. I mean, you have wildfires here every year. Um, it's just the scale is very different than what you see in most places. Because we put so much fire on the ground here, um, that really helps to reduce wildfire numbers and also intensity and scale. We tend to you know, be able to burn more in these wetter years. And so when we have these really dry years where you get the drought, even if you have a wildfire, you have less of your area that's you know, susceptible because you've gotten rid of a lot of the fuels. You're able to kind of keep those wildfires where they're less intense, less damaging than you see out west. 
What tall timbers and other wildlife management groups do is what's called prescribed burns, but we'll come back to that at the end of the episode. What you need to understand is this. Fire can be good for ecosystems, including forests. Fire can clear out what is called the understory, which basically is the part of the forest that is below the canopy but above the forest floor, so the smaller trees or shrubs in the ecosystem. When there is intense rain followed by intense drought, the buildup of vegetation that comes from increased growth in wet months becomes kindling for wildfire during the following dry months. That is a very common cycle in ecosystems. Imagine all of those conditions combined to their most intense degree. Imagine immense rainstorms followed by immense drought, followed by summer heat and summer lightning. That is literally the perfect storm that came to Florida in 1998. A wildfire is not a sudden occurrence in nature. It is the result of a chain of events that begins long before a spark is even started. The first spark in 1998 was in May, but the domino effect that set the fire into motion began months earlier in autumn of 1997. It began with El Nino, which is a climate pattern that occurs for months at a time that has a massive impact on the United States' weather. Wildfires often have a relationship with El Nino as it can lead to drier conditions in the northern parts of the United States. In the south, however, rain comes down in sheets during El Nino, and in the autumn of 1997, El Nino led to a very wet winter in Florida. As is often the case, this led to spring being much, much drier, unseasonably dry. This also led to summer temperatures starting earlier in Florida, meaning no rain and high heat. On top of that, the excessive autumn rain meant that the vegetation had grown higher and higher, meaning there was more foliage to be burned as fuel. When May rolled around, everything came to a head. The foliage, the drought, the heat, and the thunderstorms. Nothing sparks a fire quite like a bolt of lightning straight to the kindling. Over the course of weeks in May, fire departments started to notice many, many wildfires on the eastern part of central Florida. By the end of May, the situation started to look like a pattern and less like a random series of brush fires. In a report on the events from FEMA, they say, quote, By late May, fire departments and wildland fire forces throughout the state were busy responding to numerous brush and wood fires that were breaking out day after day, end quote. It's hard to imagine in Florida what that looks like. Lots of us in central Florida live very near forests and wilderness. I can see fire at a distance. I can spot it in a heartbeat, and I see it a lot. We have prescribed burns. We have smaller wood fires. It happens all the time. But in an article in the Orlando Sentinel from June of that year, as things got worse, one resident of Geneva in Seminole County saw the fire as she drove home from work. The fire burned the woods around her house, but spared the structure itself. But the doom was at her doorstep. For the people of Central Florida at the time, this wasn't a fire out in the wilderness. This was a fire coming right to them. And things were about to get much, much worse. My friend at the Orange County Regional History Center, Melissa Procco, did me a huge favor and found a dozen or so newspaper clippings from the newspapers in the area at this time, from June through July, detailing the various perspectives throughout the state as the fire continued to grow. I wanted to give her a shout out here because I could not have pulled this episode together without the documents she pulled out for me. In the Orlando Sentinel on June 9th, then State Agricultural Commissioner Bob Crawford said, quote, Florida continues to be literally a tinderbox, end quote. 
By that point, fires had grown so that blazes were popping up in, quote, Seminole, Brevard, Lake, Flagler, St. John's, and Putnam counties, end quote. If you haven't visited this part of Florida, that is an unreasonably large area that was at risk of fire. A map in the paper details how many acres were being affected from county to county. Over 2,000 in Seminole, over 1,600 in Flagler, 3,000 in Brevard, and luckily only 250 near the Ocala National Forest. Flagler County Sheriff Robert McCarthy at the time said, quote, It was a firestorm with the flames jumping from treetop to treetop. End quote. The firefighters across the state were given no reprieve from the fires. To make matters worse, there was reason to believe that arson may have been the cause of some of the fires. People were intentionally starting fires in the midst of an already intense fire season. In an article from June 13, 1998, it was reported that a train with combustion engines was releasing sparks and heat that burned businesses in South Orlando. In other towns in Central Florida, bureaucracy between city and county jurisdiction led to slower response time to burning houses, leaving people standing outside their home waiting for a fire engine to arrive. When they did, oftentimes, it was far too late. The fires were literally keeping the firefighters too distracted to help anyone else. Everyone was entirely overwhelmed from how persistent and widespread this wildfire could be. In an article published Monday, June 22nd, 1998, it is reported that the previous weekend, from the 20th to the 21st, saw 19 counties with fire, with temperatures reaching as high as 97. The rain was not coming in fast enough, and when it did, it was quick and not nearly intense enough. It did, however, bring loads of lightning, which literally started the fires that burst out in the wilderness, alongside wind carrying the fire from spot to spot. Firefighters would go out into the brush to fight off the blazes, but found themselves lost in the woods or sometimes caught in the heart of a burn. Roads closed by the dozen. Major highways like I-95 and other thoroughfares like US-17 and US-1 were closed at points from the leaping flame. From Memorial Day to the end of June, 76,000 acres of fire had been burned and over 100 buildings had been damaged. People were looking to our leaders for help. President Bill Clinton had already declared this a state of emergency. By June 29th, a week after that miserable weekend, Vice President Al Gore flew down Air Force Two to address the incident itself and to thank the hardworking firefighters that were swept up in the chaos. When his plane landed, photos from the event show smoke literally darkening the sky. VP Gore also visited destroyed homes. One photo shows him holding up a charred tricycle. Another shows him chatting with a trio of older folks who completely lost their home. Notably by Al Gore's side is, of course, the governor of Florida, Lawton Childs. Around the same time as Gore and Childs met with those affected and forestry officials, Lieutenant Governor and Democratic candidate for governor, Buddy McKay, was photographed with fire scientists and shaking hands with volunteers. Pardon the cynicism, but tragedy and disaster are easy photo ops for political candidates and always have been. The fire was no different. McKay made himself visible, showing leadership and confidence alongside Lawton Childs. Jeb Bush was making his own appearances, talking with firefighters on the ground, making himself visible. The election was now just over four months away, and at a time when the state's response to Hurricane Andrew had a negative impact on Lawton Childs' chances for governor, you had to make yourself visible and look like you were helping people out in the midst of yet another environmental disaster. 
any opportunity to prove yourself a significant leader counted. And just as July approached, Lawton Childs was facing one of his most difficult challenges he ever faced as a governor. Essentially, in order to keep people safe, he needed to cancel the 4th of July. What could he do? Fireworks were an easy way to spark even more fires. And even if, say, 9 out of 10 people were firing them extremely safe, that 1 out of 10 could lead to yet another 1,000-acre fire. Every preventative measure needed to be deployed, whatever the cost. Rain came in the days leading up to Independence Day, and people were optimistic, but the call had already been made. On June 25th, Lawton Childs made it illegal to sell, purchase, or even possess any fireworks in the state. It was a necessary precaution, especially considering that when July finally came around, the rain passed, the wind picked up, and I-95 stopped being a successful barrier. So this is interesting. In firefighting, highways serve as something called a fire break, meaning there's essentially nothing there to burn so the fire can't spread across that line. It is a firefighting technique to create artificial fire breaks, so basically to just plow land so that there's no vegetation or any kindling that can be burned by a fire. Highways are natural fire breaks, so I-95, being as big as it is, is a perfect fire break, especially when the fire is burning on the east coast of Florida. Except that on the first day of July, I-95's firebreak was broken as the storm just jumped over the road. According to the Journal of Environmental Health, 135 miles of I-95 closed. The next day, the Pepsi 400, which was a NASCAR race to be held at the Daytona 500, was postponed until October. The following day, state officials were terrified that the acres of fire burning along the East Coast would converge and become one massive wildfire rather than a dozen separate wildfires. If things continued on the current trajectory, there was no telling what would happen next. The 4th of July came and went, and by the beginning of the following week, there was light at the end of the tunnel. Rain was coming and humidity was rising, giving firefighters a chance to slow down the burns and keep them contained. By Monday, July 6th, state officials started counting their losses. A report from the Division of Forestry said that 474,462 acres had burned. The whole state had been affected, every single county, and up to $70 million in timber was lost in the months of the fire. One bizarre thing happened in those final days. The story goes that firefighters had requested more bandanas to deal with the smoke surrounding them. You know, something to cover their mouth or their faces, something to wipe the ash off of their faces. Someone somewhere made a serious error and apparently put down the word bananas instead of bandanas. Soon enough, Floridians from around the state gathered their resources and donated loads and loads of bananas, not bandanas. It is a strange story, but it's a charming one nonetheless, and it goes to show people cared. People were worried about the firefighters. People wanted to make sure they had everything they needed. It just so happened that they needed bandanas and not loads of fruit. 
When all was said and done, it was borderline miraculous that no one died directly from the wildfires. Thousands of firefighters had come from across the country to help us in the fight, and despite the dozens and dozens of structures destroyed, the human loss was considerably low. Nothing can bring back a house, nothing can bring back the things that were lost within, but the survivors had to count their losses. At least they made it through. The environmental loss, however, was far, far worse. At the end of July, folks were naturally wondering, what would we do if this happened again? Could our environment sustain a burn like that? How could we protect our forests from going through this trauma again? Weather predictions were looking like the following winter would be dry and another wildfire could bloom in the Florida brush. Firefighters started asking for higher budgets for better equipment, new structural plans were being suggested to prevent houses from burning easier, and conversations were held with California officials to see how they handled their wildfires. But perhaps most importantly, officials started to consider how they could prevent the fire before it even started. Approval for an increase in prescribed burns was looking more and more necessary to prevent any sort of firestorm from ever occurring again. Luckily, state officials agreed, and new rules for prescribed burns were put into place. Over two decades later, Cinnamon Dixon is working in the field that changed so drastically after the firestorm was over. And this is just me clarifying to make sure I understand. Prescribed burns are doing two things. They are both to help the understory of a forest to clear out and get rid of, you know, things that are maybe preventing growth. And also prescribed burns are to prevent wildfires that are affecting, that, that could be caused from droughts or things like that. Am I correct in that understanding? Yes. I mean, they also do more than that. So, you know, they help clear out the fuels that are there to prevent wildfires. But they also, by doing that, it's actually protecting our communities. It's keeping our firefighters safer so that if we do have a wildfire, you know, they're not having to try to push through thick vegetation. And so all around, it's, it's a great thing. Plus, you're helping the, the ecosystem as well. You're, you're protecting that biodiversity that we have here. Is there, is there more prescribed burn programs now than there was, say, 20 years ago? Is that something we're seeing more of? Or has it been a consistent thing over, over the past century or however long? Oh, there's definitely more prescribed fire going on now than there has in the past. Is that because uh, of the climate situ our climate emergency or is that just because it's becoming more of a common practice? I think it's it's more of an education because fire was very common historically. The Native Americans would burn the land um, for various reasons. Early uh, European settlers also picked up on it, especially cattle ranchers. They would burn their lands. It wasn't until, you know, late 18th, 1800s, early 1900s, that the federal government kind of came and was like, hey, we need to protect the forests, and that means we need to stop burning. Florida is, you know, unique, and that is one of the few areas where people didn't stop burning. <laughs> oh, really? Because, yeah, we, you know, people were like, we're seeing the benefits of it, and because we have such, you know, wet weather, the vegetation, it grows really fast. And so it doesn't take long to, for it to get really thick. And then if, you know, if we don't light it, nature is going to light it. <laughs> wow. That and was, so, that was, sorry, yeah. what just happened on my end was you said, if <laughs> you said, if we don't light it, nature's going to light it. And then a literal, that second, a flash of lightning appeared over my window. <laughs> that is so good. 
The storm over my house was really adding dramatic flair that day. Anyway, Cinnamon goes on to say that prescribed burn forests often have new plants blooming quickly, flowers growing amongst the ash. Then, you know, see it a month, two months, a year later, and they just see how green and how lush the vegetation is. They go, oh, you know, this is really nice. This actually, like, helps a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a visible, I mean, it's, it, it, it is yes. a visible effect, sure. Absolutely. Is prescribed burn becoming more necessary, or are you doing different things because of the situation happening with climate change, the climate emergency? I mean, it's always been necessary. Right. I think that it is an easy way to, you know, really bring it up with people. So, you know, like, this is important, especially as you, you know, you see out west, especially where you're getting these longer fire seasons, you're getting these high winds, these. Um, high temperatures that are for lasting much longer than historically. Um, and so it makes it easier for us to say, hey, you know, instead of waiting for this big wildfire to come through, let's see what we can do to prevent it. And if we can't prevent wildfires completely, which we can't, you know, how can we you know, mitigate, you know, the damage that they're going to do? And one of those ways is prescribed burning. It's incredibly cost-effective way to, you know, to help with the wildfire problems. To, uh, I mean, to ask a, a, a tough question, you said we can't prevent wildfires. Why is that? Why, why can't we completely prevent wildfires from happening? Well, you're always going to have lightning somewhere. Right. <laughs> you can't stop that. Um, also, I mean, a lot of our wildfires, they're started by people. I mean, someone doesn't think about it. They flick a cigarette out of their cars or driving by. You know, they've got chains that are dragging and sparking on the asphalt when they're driving, you know, someone had a, a bonfire and maybe it was a little too windy and they didn't think about it and the spark kind of flew up. I mean, what was the thing in the news? There was a gender reveal party. Like, yeah. you, don't, <laughs> you don't plan for these things. They're right. just, you know, they happen. <laughs> for many, that final sentiment may not be the most comforting. Things happen. Weather changes, lightning strikes, fires bloom but it's our job to mitigate the problem before it comes. In times of great environmental anxiety, it's comforting at least to know that someone is fighting the fight before it's even being fought, before the fire sparks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some wonderful stories waiting for you. If you are looking for a good place to jump in, or looking for a great throwback episode, you don't need to go back to the beginning. I would recommend listening to last autumn's episode about the long leaf pine. I was able to do that episode because of my friend Nicole Zampieri, who suggested Cinnamon Dixon to be the expert on this episode. So go back and give that episode a listen. I am very proud of that one. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Halloween is just around the corner. Now is the time to get in touch with Annie and get your project started. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com. And thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. 
If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of episodes, additional photographs related to stories, and photos from my trips around the state. I'll be updating past transcripts from episodes as well, so you can go back and revisit your favorite previous episodes in new ways. Head to WFMPod.com for more. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designs each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using a beautiful photograph from our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Cinnamon Dixon. She was such a delight to talk to. I cannot tell you how informative our chat was. Tall Timbers is an amazing organization that you need to check out. I provided a link to their website and some of their educational resources. They are doing a very important thing here in the southeastern United States. Go check them out and support them if you can. I also need to thank my friend Melissa Procco from the Orange County Regional History Center. I could not have done this episode without her assistance in sending along the newspapers for the research. Melissa helped me out with another big episode later this season, so you'll hear her name again soon. Go check out the Orange County Regional History Center if you're in Orlando. It's one of my favorite spots in town. Next week... We are reaching the end of the season, and I wanted to pull together a few short stories that were on the cutting room floor from this season. That includes the incredible story of why Honeymoon Island is called Honeymoon Island. It is such, such a good story. You are going to love it. And also some additional tidbits from my visit to the Motorsports Hall of Fame. I was with those guys for a very long time, and not all of it could fit in the episode. You've got to hear about some of the cars they have in their collection. It is going to be such a fun episode, so see you next Monday with a brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. If you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, look into it to help protect your community. We need you now more than ever. And please, drink more water. Have a good week. See you next Monday.